Good morning. As, uh, as Joe already extended the welcome, uh, I'd like to, to mimic it. It is so good to see each and every one of you out here, especially as we have pointed out today is not the most beautiful of days, but yet it is the day that the Lord has made, and I rejoice to be here with you all. <clears throat> not too long ago, uh, during a men's meeting, we talked about putting together a, a sermon on the order of worship, and I'm going to do that next week. But this week, I'm trying to kind of get our minds set for that study uh, going on. So if you would like to go ahead and take out a Bible and to open up to John chapter 4. And today we will be examining worship, but we will be examining it in the context of the church. Now, as followers of Christ, we should be striving to find and identify with the church that Jesus built. And one way we can do this is by looking at what he and, and his apostles commanded concerning worship. Now, if we're in John chapter 4, I want you to look at verse 19. And I want to apologize because I did, I did plan on having a scripture reading for this, and it just completely slipped my mind. I forgot to say anything about it. So we will uh, turn to John 4 and look at verse 19 through 24. <clears throat> the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We know this passage quite well. We've probably memorized several verses from this passage. This is the, the Samaritan woman at the well that, that Jesus is talking with. And, and here we see Jesus setting up a precedent. A, a, a change was coming. And as He said, now is. There was an old worship and there's going to be a, a new type of worship. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Now, just as a side note, as I said, this lesson is an introduction to next week's sermon. And, and I encourage you all to try and be here. But I think it's important for us to get this lesson, uh, to understand this topic more before we can look into and see what it is that each element of our worship means and, and how it is that God would like us to have our worship. Now, there's one important thing to realize in all this. There's an important thing to realize is there are multiple types of worship. There are different types, and not all of them are equal. Uh, we're not going to turn to these passages, but Matthew 15, verse 7 through 9, if you want to jot these down, Matthew 15, 7 through 9 describes a type of worship. It is vain worship. <clears throat> Acts 17, verse 22 and 23 describes an ignorant worship. Worship. If you will think Acts 17, that was the uh, Paul at the Areopagus and those that worshipped all these different gods but, and worshipped the unknown God. Uh, they, they were ignorant of God and that's not uh, to say that they weren't very smart, they weren't very intelligent, but their worship lacked a good knowledge of God. So there's ignorant worship. And then there's also a self-made worship. Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23 talks about that, a worship that is self-willed, self-imposed. I'm going to worship what I want to worship. I'm going to worship how I want to worship. Our goal should be to offer what Jesus called true worship. 
when we seek to learn more about the worship of the church, we should consider some things regarding the nature of the worship in the church. And that's what we want to first start out with. The worship that, that Jesus talked about here and the worship that the early church, the, the first century church had, their worship was in spirit and in truth. Jesus explains to this Samaritan woman that a time has come for a new worship. And people are now going to regard the Father and, and worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So likewise, we, should, we could seek to do the same thing. But I want to examine this saying of Christ. I want to break this down a little bit and see what exactly does this mean. So the first thing we see is he said that we are to worship God in spirit. What does that mean to worship God in spirit? Excuse me, just for a second. I can't see that thing. Some people have went through the years and said that worshiping God in spirit, well, that must mean that they, we are to worship Him sincerely or from the heart. It needs to be real, real worship from our heart. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that I don't think that's what that passage can mean. You see, Jesus is making a contrast here. If we remember the context of the passage, He said that there is a way that, we, that you used to worship. But there is a time coming, and now is, when worship will be different. So, so what could contrast what kind of worship was done in the Old Testament? I think what Jesus was showing here is spiritual worship was going to be opposed to physical worship. There is harmony with the context here in this thought, contrasting the physical or the fleshly worship of the Old Testament. And Jesus starts this train of thought with the claim that God is spirit. Therefore, spiritual worship is in keeping with the nature of God. This is also in harmony with the, Christi or with the Scriptures' contrast between Old Testament and New Testament worship. If you look over in Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 10. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these uh, of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Hebrews 9 is talking about the fleshly aspects of what Old Testament worship was. There was a physical structure. Uh, which was the tabernacle. There were special clothing that the priests had to wear, lampstands. There was a burning of incense. There was instrumental music, and there was animal sacrifices. All of this appealed to the physical sense. But now, throughout the New Testament, 
worship is focused on a spiritual side of men. We see God's temple no longer is the physical tabernacle. It is spiritual. It is made up of Christians. 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And the God and the God's Spirit, excuse me, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. I'm sorry, I'm in Philippians. <laughs> One back. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. We see that there is a change now in this, in this new type of worship. The worship of the New Testament talks about a spiritual dwelling for the Lord. But that's not all. He also goes on to say there's a change with the priests and their offering up of sacrifices, saying that now all Christians are priests, and they offer up spiritual sacrifices. Turn over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> First Peter chapter two and in verse uh, five. First Peter chapter two and verse five, where, where we read, "You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." And skip on down to verse nine. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we see again a change. Christians now, not, not a certain tribe, not a, a certain after a certain family, but all Christians are called as priests, and we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We also see that our prayers are, are like the incense. The physical incense are bor- that was burned now, our spiritual prayers are likened to this. Revelation chapter 5 <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, where we read, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers go up to God as the incense used to uh, in the physical worship of that day. And the music that they made with instruments is now made with melody, with the melody of our hearts. Ephesians five nineteen talks about this. <clears throat> in Ephesians 5 and verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Physical ordinances of the Old Testament were meant to last, as Hebrews told us, they were meant to last until a time of reformation. And as we read in Hebrews 9, this occurred with the coming of the new covenant. So to say we worship in spirit we must offer up a spiritual worship. That is, what is what, that is what's taught in the New Testament and not the physical worship which was taught in the Old Testament. So moving on, what about that second part now? What about that second part? Those who worship God must worship Him in truth. What could that mean? Well, as before, there's been some misunderstandings of this over time. Uh, some have stated this means that they must worship God exactly as He commanded 
Well, again, this is certainly something we should be striving for. I, I don't wish to take away from that. We need to worship God exactly as He commanded, but that's not a contrast to the Old Testament. If you look back to Deuteronomy 5, flip on over back to Deuteronomy 5, we see a, a commandment given to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 5, verse 32 and 33. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. I read this uh, just another version for your, for your contemplation. The, the contemporary English version describes this as Israel, you must carefully obey the Lord's commands. Follow them because they make a path that will lead to a long, successful life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. If this simply means that they must worship the commands exactly, That is no contrast to what the Old Testament said. In the Old Testament, they had to worship the commands of God. They had to follow the commands of God exactly as He had set them forth. And Jesus, even talking to the Samaritan woman here, admits that the Jews had been right in their worship. So the contrast isn't between a a type of worship that follows God's commands or doesn't follow God's commands. So what could this mean? What could worshiping in truth mean? The contrast, I believe, is the Worshiping in truth is a real worship, a true worship, as compared to a type worship or a shadow worship. Many elements of the Old Testament were just this. They were shadows of what was to come. As Hebrews 9 pointed out, if you want to flip back over there, Hebrews 9 said the tabernacle was a symbol. In verses 8 and 9 it said, where it said the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle, or while the first tabernacle was still standing, it was symbolic for the present time which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The tabernacle was a symbol of something that was yet to come. The law of Moses was a shadow. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law of Moses likewise was this, this shadow, this type uh, of, of representation for the new law that, that Christ would bring. <clears throat> so in contrast, Christ today... He's, not, no, he's no longer in the tabernacle. He's in what is called the true tabernacle. Back in Hebrews 9, we read in verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is, <clears throat> that is not of creation. But with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood he, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in verse 24, we read, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ is now in heaven, which is the true tabernacle. And we should expect true worship then to be different from shadow worship. 
This has already been shown to be the case. The Old Testament worship was a physical worship. It was a shadow of what was yet to come. The New Testament worship, therefore, is a true worship based on the truth we learn from the Scriptures. Truths like God is spirit. Truths like Christ is in heaven. So to worship in truth... To worship in truth, we must be offering up this same type of true spiritual worship and not the type worship that we saw in, in the physical, physical requirements of the Old Testament. Now, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, next Sunday, we're going to talk more about the elements of worship. And we will see that the early church was very much so engaged in this idea of spiritual worship. But... Before we conclude this morning, there are two more things that I think are, are important for us to point out about the nature, nature of worship in the church. Not only was the nature of worship done that in spirit and done in truth, we also see the nature of the worship in church. It was done for a purpose. It was done for edification. Now, worship was directed to God. And... And as we look more closely next week, we'll see passages like Ephesians 5.19, which we read this morning. It talks of this. It talks about how when we sing praises, we are singing hymns. The definition of a hymn is a song of praise to God. And Revelation 4.9.11 says we should remember. And, I, and, and we sometimes try to, to point this out before we start our services. We should remember that the primary focus of our worship is God. You might have heard it said that we're, we're merely participants. We're not the audience when, when we, as Ephesians 5, 19 is talking about when we're singing. We're not the audience. God is the audience. We are the fellow participants offering up that praise to the Lord. But we need to also realize that worship was also to build up each other. It was to build up one another. Paul instructed this to the church in Corinth uh, to do this. In 1 Corinthians 14, <coughs> First Corinthians 14 and verse 26, he says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. Building one another up was the, was the intended purpose uh, of their, or was one of the intended purposes, excuse me, was one of the intended purposes of them coming together to worship. It was expected to be an outcome. So likewise, Ephesians 5.19, we talked about in Colossians 3.16, when they talk about singing, they were speaking to whom? We understand that they were speaking to God, but we also need to note that it was a command to admonish one another. The words that we sing, they were meant to tell something to me as my fellow brothers and sisters are singing this song with me, to build me up as well, to help me to grow and to help each and every one of you to grow as well. <clears throat> so we need to note also that there was a true source, as we talked about earlier, we, uh, the idea of true and shadow. There is a true source of the edification they received. You know, it was not from the harmonious melody of the songs themselves. It was from the words, the words of the songs. And again, this points out the impact of spiritual worship versus physical worship. It's not what affects the fleshly side of man, but what affects the spiritual side. So worship, therefore, should be edifying to those engaged in it. And, and not by the sound, and not by just what sounds good, but also by the impact it has on the hearts of the participants. 
unfortunately today there are many that, that aren't interested in that spiritual side. We don't have to look very far to see those who are more interested still in that shadow type worship, that are interested in the physical side, that, that are interested in, in the melody, in, in the beat. Uh, they, they have you know, went seek, seek to, to help that along with bringing back in instrumental music like that which was seen in the Old Testament. And rather, they have lost focus on the actual words and on the actual spiritual ramifications that each song that we sing has. Let's be careful to note the difference. Let's be careful to always be seeking true edification. And finally, I want to point out that their worship was a worship that was done decently and in order. The church in Corinth we see here had a problem. They... If you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at this and how the Christians at this time, they enjoyed many spiritual gifts. There was a lot going on in Corinth. And one of the gifts they enjoyed was the gift of tongues. But they were misusing this gift. And just to be clear, this gift of tongues was the speaking in foreign language. The ability to speak in in a language that one didn't know. But these men were misusing their gifts. And 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22 tells us, the purpose of these gifts were for the unbelievers. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but those who believe. They were speaking without interpreters, and they were speaking all at once, as verse 23 says, and Paul commands them to stop. Things need to have an order. They need to be done decently, and what you're doing is neither, not decent or in order. So we can see that worship is to be done likewise. And worship that is done decently is is done in a seemly manner. The the definition of decent, a seemly manner or a manner fit for an occasion. So if we desire to offer decent worship to God, it had better be true worship. It had better be spiritual worship like like He desires. But it also better be a kind of worship that edifies our fellow participants like verse 26 talked about. It needs to be that decent order. It needs to be fit for the manner in which, it's, uh, in which it belongs to, the nature of who it is aimed at. We also see that this order, this, this order was, to, or worship, excuse me, this worship was to be in order. That is to say it was done on a, in a fixed arrangement. And so what we see is in the New Testament, they weren't having a worship that was spontaneous, it wasn't off the cuff. We'll just show up for worship this morning and, uh, you know, I, I feel like getting up and leading a song. And maybe while I'm leading a song, Logan feels like getting up and saying a prayer. And, and maybe while I'm singing and Logan's saying a prayer, Charles feels like it's time for me to preach. I have a message. We see that that's not orderly. And, and worship wouldn't have looked like that in the first century. That wasn't what, what was being set up. But rather there was a fixed arrangement or that it's, say, not spontaneous. So we have done this here. We, 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 we know what that looks like. We've decided who's going to be the song leader, and we've decided who's going to preside over the Lord's Supper, who's going to be praying and leading the prayers, who's going to be, be doing the preaching. That's not all we've done. We've done that, but we've also decided we're going to set service times. We'll have a class at 9 o'clock. We'll have a worship period that starts at 10 and, and we'll have a second one in the afternoon that starts at 2, as Joe pointed out. We're going to make sure we're here for that. Wednesday nights, we have a service that starts at 7.30. We've done this 
to, to set order, to set times where we know these are the times that we have decided to come together and to study the Lord's Word and to worship Him. So just like we better be worshiping decently, we likewise better be worshiping orderly as well. Now next week when we consider the elements of our worship, we will see how they are consistent with this nature uh, of worship. Uh, that, that is to say they're consistently patterned after spirit and truth. They're patterned after a purpose of edification and they're patterned after decency and order. But let us remember that not all worship, as I said at the beginning, not all worship is acceptable to God and it's possible for us to offer up a worship that God will reject. Doctrines of men are vanity. A lack of understanding is ignorant. Doing what we think is best is self-made. If we truly want to be a part of the church Jesus built, let us pay close attention to the words of our Lord that we read just a little bit earlier. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I want to ask you this morning, are you a true worshiper of the Father? It's a question you need to ask yourself. It's a question we all need to be looking within and examining. Are we true worshipers of the Father? I would suggest this morning, if you have not yet become a Christian, a disciple of Christ, that is one who, who disciplines. A disciple is one who disciplines their self in a certain way. So if we've not yet become disciples of Christ, that is to say we've not disciplined ourselves in His way, then you are not a true worshiper of the Father. But why would you not want to be? Having created you, having authored a plan of salvation for you, called you diligently through the gospel, and sacrificed Himself. God has given so much for you, and the little thing that He asks in return is simple obedience to a yoke that is not difficult to bear. We need to ask ourselves these questions. Do you believe, do I believe, Jesus is the Son of God? Am I willing to repent of the sinful life that I have been in, and am I willing to confess that belief in the Christ? And if we are willing to do those things, am I willing to be baptized into Him? But I also want to talk this morning about those of you that have already done that. You've already obeyed the gospel, but for some reason you've allowed sin to come in and, and change the relationship that you have with God. Is it not what it should be, that relationship you have? Maybe you want to restore that relationship. I would certainly hope so. Maybe some way you've sinned in a public fashion or in a way that's brought reproach upon the church. Or maybe you just simply want to ask the prayers of our brothers and sisters here. In just a moment, we're going to stand up and sing number 269, Nothing But the Blood. And it is so true that nothing but the blood could take us out of that horrible, detrimental place we were in, wash us of the sin that we had. But it's because of that blood also that after we've been saved, we have the hope. We have the hope that our Savior will still be standing there waiting to forgive us for the sins that we've committed, begging us to confess what we have done and to be continually turning ourselves back away from a life of sin and facing towards Him. If that be your will this morning, I encourage you, please don't wait. Come forward now as we stand and sing.